0: Which, please turn with me to your study outline, and as you're turning, I want to welcome those of you that are joining us online. Every week, we have hundreds of people joining us online in our services. We're so glad that you're with us, as well as those at the Hangar in Montana, and our friends at Arco, Idaho, so glad that you're with us, as well as Purpose Church Rancho Cucamonga, so glad that you are joining us in our study of God's Word. Now, before we get into our study, we have an annual tradition here at Purpose Church, which is our annual super. Super Bowl poll. Now, a couple of disclaimers before we begin. We usually frown on retching verses out of context. That is frowned upon in our church ministry. This is the one time where it's okay. Okay, God told us it's okay, uh, this one time, to tear them out of context. Number two, unfortunately, there are no Broncos in the Bible and no Panthers in the Bible. But there are horses and there are lions, so that's what we're going to go with here today. Okay, let's do our annual poll. How many of you are rooting for uh, Cam Newton and the Carolina Panthers? let me hear it from you guys. Okay, we got some some East Coaster uh, supporters there. Okay, here's, here's your Bible verse. We'll pop it right up there. There are three things that are stately in their stride, four that move with stately bearing, a lion me- mighty among the beasts, who retreats before nothing. Uh, that sounds like Cam Newton, doesn't it? Uh, three things that are stately in their stride, they move with stately bearing. Okay, how many of you are rooting for the old man Peyton Manning and the Denver Broncos? Let me see that. Okay. Okay. Well, I think I can see where most of you are at. Here's your verse today. Let's pop that up there. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory rests with the Lord. All right. Now, how many of you couldn't care less about who wins a Super Bowl? Okay. Here's your verse, as we do every day, every year. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promises for both the present life and the life to come. Now, I'm gonna put one more verse in there because of a special uh, couple that we have with us here today. Uh, Grant and Courtney Thorne are with us. They, um, uh, 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 Cheryl Gardner, Pastor Randy's wife, Cheryl Gardner. This is her son, uh, their son, and and daughter-in-law, Pastor Randy and Cheryl's son and daughter-in-law, he is uh, doing god 's work as an assistant coach for the Green Bay Packers okay Green Bay Packers assistant coach they 're here with us today i won 't embarrass them because they 're on vacation and stuff, but they are here today and they, he is an assistant coach for the Green Bay Packers, otherwise known as god 's work and uh, last weekend uh, he got a chance to coach in the pro Bowl so they were in Hawaii Courtney and and, uh, and, were, and, and Grant were in Hawaii Honolulu for the Pro Bowl and he got a chance to uh, to coach with that, and so they were coming back through here and got a chance to visit with their parents, and so you know as a Green Bay Packer fan, the thing that robbed Grant, Grant should be in San Francisco this this weekend, that's where he should be for the Super Bowl, but uh, the infamous coin toss, how many of you Packer fans know what I'm talking about? Uh, The infamous uh, coin toss where the coin did not flip, and so just to comfort Grant and Courtney and all of us that are Green Bay Packer fans, here's your verse, here it is right now, okay, your verse is this, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So, this is God's will, so submit to it. All right, there there you go. That's what you know. Now, as you look on page two in your program, you will see that we're going to have our Super Bowl party at the Claremont campus tonight. And at halftime, because of Grant's influence with the NFL, they have changed their time so that halftime is during our service there. Is that nice? As really, I'm, I'm just kidding. But at any rate, uh, it just works out that way that five Five o'clock is usually about halftime for a three thirty kickoff, and that's when our service is at the hub uh, on Sunday nights in Claremont. And so we will have a thirty minute worship service. God told us to only worship for thirty minutes on this one day. Uh, during halftime, you say, "Well, Glenn, we'll, uh, you know?" I guarantee that what we will be doing during that thirty minutes is more godly than watching Rihanna in the halftime show. I'm just, I'm just saying, okay. And so at any rate, we're going to have a thirty minute service, a little bit of worship with Pastor Jarrett and the band. And then I'm going to do a message on six biblical lessons from watching football. That will be the message tonight. Six biblical lessons from watching football. And so we'd love to have you come and bring a friend. We'll have the big screen in the community room and all kinds of great food. And then during halftime have that abbreviated service and then back to watching the second half once again. And then one final thing I just want to mention to you. I want to introduce you to the newest member of the Gunderson family. There he is. Um, uh, Our daughter Leah and her husband Aaron had a baby boy yesterday morning. His name is James Glenn Schilling with the emphasis on Glenn. I'm sure when he gets older, that's the name he's going to want to go by. James Glenn Schilling, and uh, so got named for his great-grandfather on his uh, dad's side and for his grandfather on his mother's side. Eight pounds, three ounces, 21 and a half inches long. Um, you know, the thing, he looks like a shilling, but there is one feature that is prominent, and that is that Gunderson forehead. You can see that anywhere. Uh, my daughter says, we Gundersons don't have four heads. We have five heads, and so That's what we have in the Gunderson family. Okay, now we get into our study of God's Word as we go chapter by chapter through the Gospel of John. Today we come to John chapter 6 and the feeding of the 5,000. And This is one of the most important miracles in all the Bible. Do you know the feeding of the 5,000 is the only one of Jesus' miracles that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And it's also tied into the Lord's Supper that we're going to celebrate here in a few minutes. And so I thought it would be great to drill down deeper, uh, connecting some of the things that we've already studied in John uh, with the feeding of the 5,000, with the Lord's Supper. I thought it would be good to put all all that together and drill deeper. And so I'd like to invite our New Testament scholar in residence, Dr. Carl Toney. Uh, He is our New Testament scholar in residence. He is the New Testament professor at Hope uh, International University. Uh, He is the teacher. Of the Quorum Deo class. And so, boy, if you want a, a great Bible study, if you look on page seven, you will see all kinds of great Bible studies that you can do uh, either after or before the service, or this one meets right now. So, you're running to your class. As soon as he's done here, he's going to run to his class. They meet second floor right behind the screen, basically. Yeah, there. They're not very happy right now. Yeah, yeah, okay. So, yeah, they're not happy because you're here. Okay. Well, we're going to be happy anyway. And then, going to lead a trip to Israel. Pastor Lisa and Dr. Carl are going to lead a trip to Israel. Israel in June, and you can see more details on that on page six in your program. And also, you'll be in the lobby after each of the services to answer any questions that might have. So, just wanted him to drill deeper on this a little bit for a few minutes, and then I'll come back and continue the message. Would you give a warm purpose, church, welcome to Dr.
1: Tony as he comes? Thanks, Glenn. Well, it's good to see you all here this morning, and it really is a lot of fun to be able to talk to you this morning about John 6, and I love that we're talking about this on Communion Sunday. Uh, John wants us to think about the Lord's Supper in new ways, in bigger ways. I think in some, some ways, uh, we really have made the Lord's Supper a bit small, haven't we? I mean, you might not even be able to see this. I'm holding up one of the piece of bread, or tic-tac of the body of Christ, right? And our little tiny sip of uh, the blood of Christ. And, and, you know, we really have turned these into uh, less than bite-sized pieces, haven't we? And even though we call it the Lord's Supper, it really is the Lord's snack, right? right? Uh, even though we call this communion, which means we're fellowshipping together, we do this in our own individual way, don't we? And John wants to remind us that it is not the Lord's snack. It is the Lord's supper. It's a meal. It's a feast. And I love that we're talking about this on Super Bowl Sunday because most of us are going to go to some great party and have lots and lots of food, aren't we? And as we gorge in all those great American pieces of food, think about the feast that Jesus and his disciples would have had at the Passover meal. It's a feast. It's a festival where they don't have just one cup of wine, they have four cups of wine, and they're eating a piece of lamb, and they're they're eating lots and lots of bread, and it's a multiple course meal. It's a meal that would have taken hours to participate in. It's a meal. The Lord's Supper isn't a snack, it's a meal. And I encourage you this morning, when you do take your tic-tac, to think of this not as a breath mint, but as an appetizer. This is to remind us that later today, we're going to feast And after church, whenever we have the Lord's Supper on Sundays, I encourage you, remember the meal afterwards. Remember the feast. And continue to celebrate this meal when you're with your family and with your friends. Remember that it is a communion meal. The Christians called it a love feast, an agape feast. And they were known for this. And so, when we take the Lord's Supper on Sundays, remember, it is not a snack it's a meal. Now, John wants to help us out with this, to talk about the abundant provision of God. And what he does is he connects the Lord's Supper to the miracles and ministry of Jesus. And what he does, he takes these lavish miracles and he connects them to the words of the Lord's Supper. The first miracle is the turning of water to wine. Okay? You have Jesus at a wedding feast, they run out of wine, and what do they do? They provide him water, and he's able to take water, and he's able to turn that water into 120 gallons of wine. Next time you're at a grocery store, don't take them out of the display case, but check them out. Think about what it would look like to have 120 gallons of wine. What would happen the next time you're filling up your car and you think about how many trips to the gas station or how much money that's going to cost to get to 120 gallons? That's what Jesus does. I like to think of it that Jesus really provided more wine than was necessary for that wedding feast. He basically sets them up as wine merchants at the end of the day. Water and wine. So when we take the juice, we're supposed to remember the blood of Christ. We're supposed to remember the abundant provision that he provides. 120 gallons of wine. More than enough. We're also supposed to think of this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, where Jesus, in the middle of the desert, and they're on a mountain, they've been away for a while, and they've run out of food. People are hungry. What does Jesus do? He provides food for 5,000 people. Before he does it, he asks, how much would this cost? He's told, 200 denarii. Well, I don't know what a denarii is, right? It's a day's wage. So, if you take 200 denarii, that's about $16,000, That's how much he spent feeding 5,000 people. And he had leftovers, 12 baskets. Abundant provision. When we take the bread, we're supposed to remember the abundant provision of God. That it's 5,000 loaves of bread. $16,000 worth of bread. That's the abundant provision that God provides for us. And John wants us to remind us of that when he shows us these miracles. He wants us to think of our great needs. So these people, the wine, they ran out. They were embarrassed out in the middle of the desert. They're hungry. And there's only a kid with five loaves and two fish. There's only water. They take what they have and they give it to Jesus. That kid that's out there in the middle of the desert, he had enough for his own meal. He would have been fine. Never mind the other 4,999 people. He had enough but he saw the opportunity to share. And he trusted Jesus enough that when he shared his one meal, that it would be enough for everybody else. The Lord's Supper is a reminder to us to not just take the abundant provision that God's given us, but to remind us that we need to share with other people and to trust God that even with the blessings that God's given us in our life, that if we hand them over to God, he can use them in great and miraculous ways we're called to ask ourselves, what are the abundant provisions of God or life? This meal is a reminder of us that God abundantly provides. The other thing is, this isn't the first time in Israel's history that, that this has happened. This is, in a way, a been there, done that kind of miracle. As soon as Jesus does this, in the middle of the desert, people are thinking, when's the last time God did this? Oh, yeah. Moses, the manna and the quail in the wilderness. The first time God saved his people, brought them out of of Egypt. Slaves to free people. Saves them. Abundantly provides. 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus is like Moses. They remember the stories of Elijah and Elisha, great prophets of God, who provide miraculously meal jars, and they provide oil. Elisha even feeds 100 people miraculously. It's in God's DNA to save people. It's in God's DNA to abundantly provide. Jesus, as the incarnate word of God, comes to remind God's people that God wants to abundantly provide. It's in his DNA that he wants to bring provision. And today, when we take the Lord's Supper, we need to remember that abundant provision. What are the needs in our lives? What are the things that we have that we can give to God, that we can share with others, that can be used to provide for other people? So we take this meal, lay those needs out before God, and ask God to abundantly provide today. Every time we take the Lord's Supper is a reminder to us that the same power of God that caused Jesus to turn water to wine, the same power of God that caused him to feed 5000 people, that same power of God is working in our lives today and is working through this meal. So let's remember the day, the abundant provision of God.
0: Let's thank Dr. Carl. Thank you, man. Good stuff. And we will let you run off to your class, and that class is there every Sunday, as well as other wonderful classes of Bible study, drilling down deeper into God's Word week by week, and really encourage you to take advantage of one of those that's there on, on page seven. The other thing about this, isn't salvation is in God's DNA, is that we are to share not only our meal, like the little boy did, but we're to share our faith with other people as well. Would you look at the lower right-hand corner of the next page of your study outline? And there you'll see that next Sunday, we have one of the best opportunities for connecting our friends with Jesus. You know, so many people need evidence. They may, some people are right brain people. And so you reach them through their heart. But many people are left brain people, and that is you reach them through the evidence, through the facts of the gospel of Christ, uh, to the facts of Christianity. And Mark Middleburg is going to be with us, the same message at all three services, 830, 945, and 1111, and uh, next week also at, at the Hangar in Montana. It's going to be next Sunday uh, with you at 5 o'clock at the Hangar in Montana and at Arco for your morning services and also uh, for Rancho at 10 o'clock in the morning. Take advantage of that, each one of us, each one of the campuses, because he is a best-selling author and Christian apologist. Apologist means a defender of the Christian faith. He's going to give us 20 reasons that Christianity is true. And it's going to be a great encouragement to you. But it's going to be a great opportunity to bring a friend of yours that needs encouragement. Or maybe a friend of yours that is seeking evidence for the Christian faith and needs evidence for the Christian faith in order to follow him. And this is going to be a great opportunity. So he gives 20 reasons. Archaeological, historical, uh, scientific, philosophical, uh, in every different area, fulfilled prophecy. 20 reasons that Christianity is true. And our friends need That evidence. I was made aware of this again or reminded of this. Last Sunday, we had a baptism at the 1111 service. The pastor, Randy, was baptizing a young man named Mark Jeffs. And and, and I'd never heard his testimony before
2: until I heard him say this. Let's watch this together. My privilege to introduce uh, Mark Jeffs. And Mark attends uh, 1111 service. And so, Mark, it's an honor and privilege uh, to meet you and to know that you want to go public with your faith today so mark can you briefly tell us uh how you came to know the lord yeah
1: um i always had major doubts and could never really fully commit and when pastor glenn did his series on the lovidity of the bible it really hit home i i never knew all the information and him speaking about it really cleared
2: up a lot of doubts i i'm ready to commit my life to jesus awesome awesome man jeff good words good words for all of us and uh and, and, Mark, is it, have you received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord? Yes, I have. And is it your desire to follow him in the waters of baptism today? Yes, it is. And because of your profession of faith and because of his command, it's my privilege to baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
0: Did you hear that as a young man, he just simply needed the evidence that's there. He just needed somebody to give him the evidence and that enabled him to make that commitment. And so I encourage us to take advantage of our oikos, the Greek word for household, the 8 to 15 in our sphere of influence. Who is it in your oikos that you could invite next Sunday that would get some answers to their questions and help them to make that commitment uh, to Christ? Uh, By the way, I want to apologize that Pastor Randy had a Green Bay Packers t-shirt in the the baptistry. Let me tell you what happened. It was a plain white t-shirt, but as soon as he touched the baptismal waters, the Green Bay emblem just (laughs) appeared on it. It was just a a baptismal miracle, an amazing thing. but, But, you know... This is what our church is all about, reaching people for Christ, giving them what they need in order to make that commitment, a reasonable faith, just like a lawyer. You can't, you don't prove it like scientific proof where you can reproduce it in the laboratory. It's legal evidence, evidence beyond a reasonable doubt. That's what Mark Middleberg will give us next Sunday, evidence beyond a reasonable doubt that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Just got word uh, from up at the hill at Crestline, at Thousand Pines Camp, uh, Pastor Adrian our junior high pastor, has a bunch of junior hires up there, and the main speaker for the whole camp that we're a part of is Pastor Brian, our young adult pastor, and I got word back that 200 junior hires made decisions for Christ last night, 30 of them for the first time decisions for Christ, And six of them were from our church family. And so this is what it's all about. This is what we're called to do. Now let's continue with John chapter six, uh, verse one. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Now Jesus here, as we begin this chapter, is at the peak of his popularity. 24 hours later, he's going to preach a sermon and lose almost all of his followers, okay? It's going to be like uh, somebody campaigning in New Hampshire, and uh, all of a sudden, they're at 99% approval rating, and the polls show they're going to get 99% of the vote, and they give one political speech, and it goes from 99% to 1% in a 24-hour time. Well, that's what happened to Jesus. At the beginning of the chapter, he's at 99% approval rating. By the end of the chapter, 24 hours later, he's at 1% approval rating. What did he say to cause what happened in verse 66? From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. What happened? What did Jesus say and do that caused so many people to stop following him? Well, first of all, he starts off well. He makes a picnic lunch for about 20,000 people. We're not sure how many were there. Uh, The Gospels say, John's going to say here that it was 5,000 men. Uh, Matthew includes the detail that in addition to that, there were women and children. So depending on how many women and children there were to every man that was there, it could have been as many as 10, 15, or 20,000 people. Uh, Verse 3, then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd of people coming toward him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He looks at them with compassion. Jesus is the one that's sensitive to their needs. He sees that they must be hungry. Uh, He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him. Now, I love Philip. He's the guy at work or the gal at work that whenever you come up with a problem, they don't give you an answer to the problem. They just give you statistics and define the problem more accurately. Do you have anybody like that at work where they just define the problem, but they never give an answer to the problem? It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. So Philip, thank you, Captain Obvious, uh, tells us that the, defines the problem. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? So Philip had defined the problem better. Andrew had defined the impossibility of the the problem. He only saw the impossibility of it. Well, thank you so much, Andrew and Philip. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much, as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, He said to his disciples, "'Gather the pieces that are left over. "'Let nothing be wasted.'" Sounds like your mother, doesn't he? That's where your mother got it from. Let nothing be wasted. Mark adds the additional details. The 12 basketfuls were left over. They picked up 12 basketfuls of what was left over after everybody had had their fill. Now, I'm so glad it happened 2,000 years ago and the miracle didn't happen today because if it happened today, this is probably what would have happened. Uh, Somebody would have said, "'I can't eat that. "'I'm vegan.'" Has that fish been tested for mercury? Is that bread gluten-free? So fortunately, uh, they did not have those questions in order to ask. Well, now we see the remainder of the events of this chapter. Jesus refuses to be crowned king. A bunch of the crowd camps out. Jesus leaves the crowd and walks on water. He climbs in a boat with his disciples. He transports the boat to Capernaum. The crowd realizes where Jesus went and follows him there. Kyle Eidelman writes, by the time they catch up to Jesus, they're starving. They've missed their breakfast, and they're ready to find out what's on the lunch menu. But Jesus has decided to shut down the all-you-can-eat buffet. He's not handing out any more free samples. Now's where it gets tough. Now we begin to see where he loses the crowd. Jesus reminds them that he matters more than a free meal, okay? 99% approval rating, he promises them all bread. Goes down to 1% where he says, I'm the one, I'm really your deepest need. Your felt need is more bread to eat. Your true need is me. Next page of your study outline, continuing with verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Uh, Jesus, we want to make you Time Magazine's man of the year. We want to put you on the front cover. You're the man. Rabbi, teacher, when did you get here? He's at the peak of his popularity. Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, okay, the signs that would validate that he was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. In the original Greek, this phrase, had your fill, means stuff like an animal. He's basically saying, You got to stuff yourself like a pig. That's why you're here, because you had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Okay? He's saying to them, all you want is a full stomach. You don't want me. It's about a relationship with me. It's not just about a full stomach. Now Jesus wants to provide for physical needs and he commands us to meet the needs of people like clean water in Flint, Michigan. This is part of what we're called to do and, and taking care of kids and raising $155,000 in a week to give to the kids of Thailand for their physical needs as well as their spiritual needs. But he says, keep your priorities straight. The most important need is not your physical needs. It is your spiritual needs. A relationship with me, you may feel the need for more bread. But your real underlying need is me and a relationship with me. What if uh, every uh, night I call up Kimberly as I'm working in the office and say, what time is dinner? And she says, six o'clock. And so I pull in at one minute till six, wolf down the food, jump back in the car and drive back into my desk and continue working in the evening. Now that has happened on occasion. I want to confess to you. But you know what? If it happened every night, I'd be in a heap of trouble, wouldn't I? Because she would have her feelings hurt. And she'd have a right to have her feelings hurt. Because I would, she'd realize it's not about the relationship with me. He just wants the food I provide. And he doesn't care about me as a person. He doesn't want to develop a relationship with me. And, and, and so that's what Jesus is saying to them here. He also reminds them that flour and yeast won't feed a soul. Verse 28. Then they ask him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this... To believe in the one he has sent. Five times in the gospel, they use the word believe. Twenty times, they use the word follow. And so they're like two wings of an air airplane. Follow and believe. To believe in Jesus is to follow him. To follow him is to believe in him. And so they ask him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Are you not entertained? Uh, what, how can I entertain you? How can you entertain us? Uh, if they don't get food, they want entertainment. They want a miracle they can tell their grandchildren about. Uh, they, want, they want food to fill their stomachs. And then they think of an idea, hey, here's a suggestion. You could kill two birds with one stone. You could feed us and give us another miracle that we can tell our grandchildren about. Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, it's not Moses who has given you bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. He's talking about himself. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. What you need is a relationship with me. What you need is to open up your heart to me, to have a relationship with the Father through me. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty, okay? You know, in every culture, bread fills you up. It's the comfort food. In every culture, over 2,000 years since Jesus, every culture around the world, there's some form of bread, and that's the comfort food that fills you up. How many of you have ever eaten too much bread when you go to a restaurant, you don't have time for the room for the meal afterwards, okay? How many of you have told your kids, don't eat so much bread, you won't have any room for your meal? Anybody ever, ever said that to your kids? We say that all the time. Watch out that you don't fill up on the bread, because bread is something you fill up on, okay? Uh, Day Nocker writes, physical bread can satisfy a growling stomach, but it can't satisfy a growling soul, okay? Um, We we try to satisfy a spiritual hunger with a physical solution, and that's what Jesus is warning us about here. You see that quote by Augustine. He lived in 400 AD. We know him now as Saint Augustine, (laughs) but I tell you, he did not start out as a saint, okay? Uh, He was a total womanizer. He lived with a woman he wasn't married to. He had almost unrestrained sexual promiscuity. And Augustine wrote, my real need was for you, my God, who are the food of the soul. I was not aware of this hunger. He was trying to fill it But he didn't know the real hunger he was trying to fill with all these other physical uh, solutions. There's another place where Augustine said, our hearts are restless, O God, until they find their rest in thee. There's a God-shaped hole in every person's heart and we try to fill it with all kinds of other stuff and the only thing that will fill it is our relationship with him. There's an emptiness in every soul and only God can fill that happiness. It can fill that emptiness. It's so easy to live the way Augustine did. When I get more sex, I'll be happy. If I get a girlfriend or a boyfriend, if I get married, then finally I'll be happy. If I get a new car, if I get another drink, then I'll be happy. If I could just get a better job, I'll be happy. When I retire, I'll be happy. When I lose weight, I'll be happy. Everybody, you you live like me. I always wanted, if I could lose 10 pounds, I'd be the happiest person on the planet. You know, we're always just thinking, one more thing, Lord. Jesus says, only I can satisfy the deepest longing of your soul. We try to fill it with all these other things. And Jesus said, it's me that is your true need beneath all these other surface needs. Augustine said, my real need was for you, my God, who is the food for the soul. I was not aware of this hunger. Jesus reminds them that no one goes to heaven without him. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread Will live forever. In the original Greek, this word eats, uh, N.T. Wright says, literally means to gobble down, to munch it, to devour it. If you devour and pursue in that way a relationship with me, that's the thing that will cause you to truly live now and truly live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves How can this man give us his flesh to eat? They're accusing him of cannibalism. Jesus means to open up our hearts and receive him, but they're accusing him of cannibalism. And this has gone on for years. In the early church, there was a rumor because of the Lord's Supper, uh, taking the bread, uh, the body of Christ, and the cup, the blood of Christ. There was a rumor about the early church in the Roman Empire in the early days that they were cannibals because they heard about this. And so the Jewish leaders are accusing him of the of the same thing. But Jesus doubled da- doubles down on the idea. Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. He's talking about receiving him as your Lord and Savior. I will raise you up the last day. There are only two responses to the claims of Jesus. The first is you can walk away, and Jesus will let you walk away. He's a gentleman. He doesn't tackle you. He doesn't force you. He doesn't impose himself on you. He gives us free will, and one of our two choices is we can just walk away, and many people do. Verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? In the original Greek, it doesn't mean it's hard to understand. It means hard to accept. They knew what he was talking about but they didn't want to choose to follow him. It was hard to accept. They understood it. They just didn't want to accept it. Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the son of man ascend to where he was before? Maybe it'll convince you if you see me ascend to heaven as he did at the end of his time here on earth. Verse 66, from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Kyle Eidelman writes, I was struck by the fact that Jesus doesn't chase after them. He doesn't soften his message to make it more appealing. He doesn't send the disciples chasing after them with a creative handout, inviting them to come back for a build-your-own-sunday ice cream social. He seems okay with the fact that his popularity has plummeted. Number two, the second choice is not to walk away, but to follow him. Verse 67, he turns to his disciples. He says, you do not want to leave too, do you, Jesus asked the 12? And there's, in his human side, there is pain in his voice. I tell you, as a pastor, I always say that when anybody leaves the church, it's like a death in the family, you know? But how much worse for Jesus to see thousands of people walk away uh, from him, to walk away from him, and he turns with a broken heart, with poignancy, in, in, in his tone, he turns to his disciples and says, you do not want to leave too, do you? Now, Simon Peter is often a knucklehead. But my goodness, he has his moments, doesn't he? Where he says exactly the right thing. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. One of the most beautiful declarations in all the Bible. Peter has this beautiful moment where Jesus says, you don't want to leave too, do you? And Simon Peter answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, he went beyond that, I will follow Jesus only as he gives me fill in the blank. Okay? He just says, I'll follow you, period. Jesus, I don't understand everything about you. I find your ways hard sometimes. I find it hard to understand what you're up to. I find it hard to believe in you. But where else would I go? Because you have the words of life. Uh, we, won't, we don't say, I will follow Jesus as long as he gives me bread or health or a job, or I'll follow Jesus as long as he gives me money, or good looks, or comfort, or friends, or happiness. We say, Jesus, I will follow you, period. I will follow you, period. As the prophet Habakkuk said in the Old Testament, even though the fig tree does not blossom, and even though there are no grapes on the vine, yet I will still follow you, my God. Even if, it, even if I don't get great stuff, in this life, this side of heaven, I will still choose to follow you. Dane writes, we keep following first because Jesus is the truth. He has the words of eternal life. We keep following secondly because Jesus isn't a vending machine. We are pursuing a relationship. We follow him simply because it is the right thing to do. And if other blessings come our way, then praise God. But we choose to follow him regardless of whether those other blessings come or not. And all God's family said, amen. Now, we're going to proclaim that through the Lord's Supper. Every time we take the cup and the bread, it reminds us, of this relationship we would have with him because of his death on the cross. You say, uh, Glenn, I'd like to uh, take this, but what do I need to do? Well, uh, I just need to know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. If you know that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then you're very welcome to show that publicly, outwardly, by taking the Lord's Supper. You say, Glenn, well, I'm not sure if I've done that or if I'd like to do it today. Um, How would I go about doing it? On the upper left-hand corner of the next page of your study outline, if you turn to the next page, upper left-hand corner, it says how to be a follower of Jesus. There are three simple steps the Bible talks about. And then there's a little suggested prayer there. And there's nothing magical in the exact wording of that prayer. It simply summarizes what the Bible says we need to cry out to God in our own words. It doesn't have to be fancy words. doesn't have to be certain words. It just has to be a cry of a heart that is kind of summarized in the things that are in that prayer. And so if you've ever prayed that prayer or something like it in the past, or if you'd like to do it today, and receive him, the bread of life, open up your heart to him, the bread of life, praying that simple prayer, opening your heart to Christ, then you are very, very welcome to show that outwardly by taking the bread and the cup that represent the bread of life and the cup which represents his blood shed for us on the cross for the complete forgiveness of our sins. So let's take just a moment now and prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper.